Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis, I'm your presenter, and today we're talking all things leaders within the industry, and I'm very excited to introduce you to Mark Haben. Welcome, Mark, to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Really great to have you on. Now, Mark, if you want to introduce to all our lovely listeners exactly who you are, where you come from, and what title you hold. Yeah, sure. So I'm Mark Haben. I'm Director of Zoological Operations here at Wildwood Trust, um, where we've got currently got two parks, uh, one in Kent, one in Devon. Both parks focus very heavily, of course, on native species, for those of you familiar with what we do the main our main focus is conservation and um introducing species back into the wild and we're just kind of working on this very large uh, bicycle introduction project in kent we're doing chuff releases across the the kent landscape as well and uh, lots of collaborative work with with many conservation organizations um, wildcats pine martins uh, and the like so yeah very exciting very very busy but i've got a great team around us to support yeah absolutely some really great work going on at your end now to get into your position and your very very amazing position at that you obviously get to do some quite incredible things no one simply rolls into that sort of role everyone has a journey has those life moments and really those career highlights to building to the position you're in today do, do you have the mark do you have those real career highlights behind what makes you what you are today I, I guess as with anyone yeah absolutely hard work I, I hope I've always prided myself on, on working very very hard I was very ambitious as a young, as a young keeper particularly um also there's degrees of luck as well but and I, I do recognize that you know you're lucky to work with great people around you that help elevate you push you forward but my, my journey started really I, I guess after university um I've, I've been a lifelong falconer as young as I could remember I trained birds of prey and hawks and falcons and uh, all kinds of animals actually growing up but uh, so it's, it's been a lifelong interest to me since I, you know, it's funny, really. But when I when I was a little kid, I was my son's age, about eight years old. I, I learned every Latin name for every North American snake. I think I was just obsessed with snakes and birds of prey. And as those interests developed, I, I was offered an opportunity to work at London Zoo as uh, working on the animal training team. Like Andy Horsworth, who's now uh, at Banham, and Rob Goodchild, who's now at uh, Suffolk Gale Sanctuary. Jim Mackey, of course, who's the animal training officer now at, at ZSL. We worked together, did a great team. I thought really, really good, great fun. Learned an awful lot and, and thoroughly enjoyed it and that was for a summer seasonal position um, and I ended up staying on at ZSL for quite some time I ended up moving over to the invertebrate uh, house which we were setting up something called Bugs then which was uh, or the Web of Life as it was initially called which was a big in invertebrate conservation breeding centre absolutely fascinating again met a fantastic team of people worked with them for several years then got off the job um, working in Ecuador with some of my old uh, university flatmates and they were doing some uh, exploratory work for a company, company called Global Vision International. They asked me to go and join them as expedition biologist, which I went and did. I spent most of my time catching snakes and watching harpy eagles and doing all the kind of things that anyone would love doing. If you love wildlife, being stuck in the Amazon rainforest for eight months or so is uh, is anybody's dream. So I managed to spend a lot of time doing that. Um, I, I came back at the end of it to, to London Zoo where I, I was lucky enough to take on the position of one of the head keeper positions overseeing the animal shows and the animal training team. And then 
it's long story short, after bringing quite a lot of effort, a lot of work, I was offered the animal manager position uh, at London, which I did. Worked very closely with a guy who I, I looked up to massively, who's uh, John Ellis. He was a, the senior curator of birds there, who, who very sadly passed away. And, and when he did so, I, I looked after that position. I certainly didn't do anything like he did, but um, took on curator of birds and zoo manager and, and finished my time at London, um, head of zoological operations for London and Whipsnade, which was great. I learned, again, I learned a lot from my time at Whipsnade as well. And I spent 21 years at ZSL before uh, transitioning over here in, uh, to Wildwood in 2019 to focus my career uh, more so on, on native species and native species conservation, which uh, I've learned a tremendous amount about. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly hectic for us. I've, it's a, a smaller, a smaller collection in some respects because it is native or formerly native animals. But the output and the work of the team here is really quite phenomenal, and uh, a lot gets achieved in terms of direct conservation and release projects, which for me is is very exciting. I mean, a passion of mine, of course, uh, for for a long time, has been birds of prey. I chaired during, during a lot of my time at ZSL. I think for for 11, 12 years, I chaired the falconiform tag, now tag for for Iaza, which I, I'm still an advisor for. What a journey and some really great stories to go alongside it. So thank you very much for sharing those now looking back at that journey mark do you have any top tips any true little hidden gems for maybe your younger self but also for someone listening to help them on their journey i think zookeeping and animal management and, and zoo work has changed so much in what i consider to be a relatively short time but of course there's zookeepers starting now that weren't even born when i started i think it'd be really open you know be open to, to learning new experiences but also perhaps have more of an understanding of other people and their reasons for doing the work that they do a very personal journey for everybody there is no one who does this work because they don't care about animals care about wildlife i have seen people that perhaps care less for their colleagues or for other people as part of that journey mm. in any zoo that you go to or any organization that you go to and i would, I would say certainly take into account other people a bit more I, I think that is something everyone could learn but also recognize that the work that you're doing is is hugely valuable as well and i think sometimes it's, it's easy to forget the the reason you're doing something and you're doing something good you're doing a really good thing you're working really long hours you nine times out of ten for very little pay and i think it's really important to try and remember why you enjoy it and why you're doing it in the first place yeah i could not agree more very important to remember those key values behind the role but also what you enjoy and why you're in it for the first place so no exactly could not agree more with you now is there one trait within you which has allowed you one one attribute one personality trait i guess to allow you to become the person you are and to get the position you are in today resilience i think i, I think i'm a resilient person i don't get flustered very easily it can be easy to do that because this work comes with a lot of challenges but i've always been resilient and, and, and hardworking. Uh, i like to think i've always been told that um and i believe that as well and i but i certainly think being open to change and being resilient into it is, is really important yeah a great trait to have i think resilience is key throughout this industry and it's only showing through your career that it's very much a worthwhile and a great trait to have so no great great answer now the, the next thing i want to ask you mark is throughout your career and and you've spoken on it yourself recently it does get hectic it does get on top of us and it can 
very much run the show and run our lives um how have you learned to turn the craziness the chaos and the the overwhelming feeling into productivity and a winning attitude i genuinely enjoy it the work that we're doing and, and the work that the team here are doing has a really tangible end goal and a reason behind it and you're looking at when this bison project that we're doing now you know it's been a real labor of love for the last 18 months to two years worked tremendously hard on it along with everybody else who's involved in this project but seeing those bison release doing their thing through the woodland and hopefully transforming a, a largely non-native unnatural landscape into something more akin to a, a native English woodland which is going to take decades you know to, re- to really see the net benefit of that um, and I think always being aware of that longer term goal why are you doing it you know we're in the middle of a climate crisis we're in the middle of an extinction crisis and I think it's very important that particularly in zoological organisations where you've got these pools of extremely enthusiastic and very talented people that organisations need to take responsibility for doing what they say on the tin and making sure that we are working on conservation. We are doing absolutely everything that we can do and we are far more than a tourist attraction. No, for sure. And I think leading from that, not everything always goes to plan. Things do go wrong. Mistakes can be made and a learning curve is needed. How have you learned to, to learn from these, it's quite a harsh word to use, but mistakes and errors i guess of judgment and turn them into a moment of success and and true growth for yourself you're absolutely right i'm a master of mistakes i've made i've made countless mistakes probably today i've made countless mistakes but you do and i think you know being transparent about it trying to and always trying to learn from i guess one of the things you learn as well is you you don't know everything and when you're young well when i was younger perhaps i thought i knew more than i did and then you get older and you realize that you didn't know what you thought you did and perhaps you still don't. So just being very open to learning, um, learning from your mistakes, mistakes of others around you and, and, and learning together as well, being far more collaborative. I feel that sometimes in, in conservation circles, there can be uh, there can be big egos around it. And I think I've, I've learned a lot about that perhaps over, over the years that um, you learn from it, you, you do better because of it. And your, t- and your teams will trust you more, I think, if, if you're demonstrating that from a leadership perspective. Yeah, for sure. And I think that leads perfectly into the building of a team. No collection is anything without the core behind it. The true bodies on the ground who are leading by example, those amazing keepers. From your words of wisdom and, and really delving into what you look for, what is it that you look for when building a team? And for anyone listening, what makes a keeper all-rounded in your eyes? Do you know, I, th- I think you, you want, obviously, you need someone who's going to be passionate about wildlife and nature. I think that that is a given. Certainly for me, I want someone who is able to research. I don't just mean literary research because that doesn't suit everyone. We all learn differently, but observing animals, spending that time, knowing as much as you can about the species that you're looking with. And somebody who is able to work with other people as well. Um, I think that teamwork element is really important. And if you're not able to work as part of a team every day you know we all have an off day being able to speak about that as well and I think that transparency with someone is really important and being able to express and of course that works both ways you need someone who's able to listen to that as well but for me someone who's enthusiastic you just know don't you really passionate about a, a species or or conservation or a tax so it's something really that stands out from a from a conservation or wildlife perspective it's, it's really important to me very much so now mark i'm going to ask you that age-old question it's something chucked around the industry day after day month after month year after year never truly answered because i don't know if there is an answer but we're going to give it a go and that is what is more valuable in your opinion experience or education three years in a degree or an equivalent 
or three years in the in the industry in the field gaining that needed experience what one do you prioritize more what one do you think is more valuable um try not sit on the fence as much as you can but we'll, we'll give it a go what do you think, Mark? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point. I think it comes down to the individual very much so, uh, without sitting on the fence too much, because I'm not going to. It's such an individual perspective. What I would say is that not having a degree should never hold you back. That's one thing I think is really important. A, a degree is really, it's a great thing to have, and it will certainly help you in part of your, your zookeeping journey. But it's not an absolute must. And I don't want people to, I would I would be really saddened and I would be far worse off myself in the role that I'm doing if people without a degree were prevented from following up with something that's a passion and a dream. Because for me, that enthusiasm, that passion and that absolute dedication and desire to do something good for animals, for wildlife, for conservation, for horticulture, you know, you can't, you can't necessarily teach that in a classroom. And so I certainly would never want to discourage anyone from, from developing their education further I, I really dislike thinking that people were being held back because they hadn't done that and they've got so much to contribute still we all learn differently yeah. you know um and and that i do feel strongly about sitting in the classroom learning that in a in a formal education setting it isn't for everyone doesn't make them less experienced or worse in any way shape or form and that that i really believe very much so and linking to that perfectly for anyone listening who's trying to get a role or trying to simply get into the industry other than experience or education, is there anything more that someone can do in other skill sets which can make them rise to the top, make them shine a little more than other candidates, putting that little golden star on their CV from tractor skills to gun license to first aid skills and so on? Is there anything in your eyes which allows them to shine a little brighter? There's, there's lots of things. And I guess it depends if you're talking about at the interview stage, which is very commonplace now where, where lots of zoological organisations are recruiting people they know from their volunteer experience when i was a seasonal i started off as a seasonal keeper in london and you know i was given a tuesday off every day i love i never took a tuesday off i didn't take that i worked solidly throughout because for me i wanted to show that i'd work harder than everyone else that's not necessarily something that should be encouraged because i think people's time is very important and i think people actually need yeah. to have that segregation away um so that would come very much down to the role that they're looking at i think for me a, a while would certainly that interest in native species what you're doing with half gone bird watching I've, i you know it or, or understanding learning showing an active learning about native horticulture as well that's critically important to everything we do not just from browse provision for the species that we work with but from developing the triple si we have a site special scientific interest um, of wildwood and understanding the plants and the horticulture and taking an active interest in the ecosystem in which we're actually based is really important to me i think that that would definitely stand out and has stood out on interviews before some really great tips there and i'm sure our listeners are soaking those in now looking at your team as individuals as you've discussed they're amazing at conservation education and bringing the best welfare possible to your animals but as a collective what really brings them together as a I guess one attribute, one trait, which one value really sums up the amazing collective that makes them one. Do you know what? I think collectively their knowledge and interest around native species, all of them. And we because I, I guess because we have so many active conservation projects. So for, for the mammal team, for example, we're, we're taxonomically split at Wildwood. So small mammal team we're working currently with on the wildcat project on pine martins. So it's conservation projects for birds we're looking 
looking at um, red bill chuff turtle doves later this year. Hoose stock, obviously, we've got this big bison project. We're introducing our elk. Carnivals, we've got um, always monitoring the wolves, and we've got the young bear that, that has just arrived. And, of course, lynx, which may form part of a, a future project for us. We'd love to think so. So there's a, a great deal of collaboration directly with conservation teams. And for us, the keepers work. For me, our keepers are conservationists, uh, and, and I very much see them as, as part of that. And I think that really draws them together. As, and, and as much as anything, there's, there's very complementary skills between all of them. We've got, we've got one of the keepers who's absolutely a, a, an expert on native horticulture, and he's brilliant. So when the carnival team are designing animal enclosures, we, we, we grab Stephen and he, he does his thing with the plants. And, you know, we're doing reds. We do a lot of work with red squirrels. We release a lot of red squirrels um, historically. Designing new squirrel pens, you know, it, everyone seems to come together. And I think it's a real drive for conservation and a shared passion um, in, in seeing animals going out into the wild. I think that, that's great. Some really nice words there about what sounds a really, really great team. Now, I'm going to take you, Mark, into a part of this podcast we call The Big Questions. It's a part of the podcast where we try and tackle a few of the larger questions floating around the industry and try and find the true answers behind them and try and attempt to unmuddle them a little bit. So let's give it a go. I'm going to take you into number one. I'm going to take you all the way to America. It's sort of a demographic survey done of the age range of their zookeepers and more importantly, the checkout ages of those keepers. And they're seeing a rough checkout age of around 32, 33. Now, we're seeing a rough resemblance over here in the UK, and you can put that down to a whole bundle of things through to simply a, a change in life and life goals, the living costs we're going through, um, along with a whole bundle of other things that I'm sure you could list um, fairly simply. Now, along with all this, in the UK, we're considered labour over a trade, which definitely doesn't help the matter. Now, putting that all together, I guess trying to give a little comfort to our listeners, but more importantly, do, do you see this ever changing? And is there anything more that maybe can be done? It's, a, it, it, it's an interesting point and probably a point of extreme frustration for many, many people, particularly in zoos where you do, you've got large commercial outputs as well. So you see your marketing teams being paid a lot more money. Yes, much of that comes down to the, you know, there, there, there's perhaps caveats on their, on their wages that mean you've got to bring in X amount of money to be able to um, justify those salaries. But absolutely, I, I get the frustration Believe me, I, I did myself for many, many years moving on to manager, more managerial positions. And it is, a, it is a point of frustration. And I don't think that general rec recognition has been accepted from a time when I first, even when I first started, which wasn't, you know, it's not many years ago or 25 years ago. You know, the job of zookeepers, my, my job, cleaning out animals, whereas the role of zookeeping now is entirely different. And the skill set is entirely different and it's elevated significantly. As, as our responsibilities in zoos has, has changed, so too has that expectation of zookeepers. And now they're, they're animal managers, they're dietitians and nutritionists, they're husbandry specialists, they're focused on husbandry training, animal behaviour and enrichment. We're asking people to look at life, life support systems, be aquarists. We're asking for introductory expertise to introduce carnivores and uh, forming large herds like bison out here. We are asking a tremendous amount. We have got, got keepers heavily responsible, and justifiably so, for the design of red squirrel enclosures, for wildcat enclosures, which is, you know, these are international projects. The talent and skills that these people have isn't justified in the sun. I, I know that. I do hope that that will change and, and be recognised. Um, of course, there are always limitations to budgets. 
it's certainly certainly in, in in the smaller collections there are but you if you're not paying that perhaps what we would consider a suitable amount of money for the work that people are doing you've got to provide the conditions you've got to provide other elements of that job that is is um acceptable and you know you, you hear horror stories of people coming to work they pay very little and it's toxic or miserable and un, unpleasant you think, why these poor people being exploited because they love animals and that isn't acceptable so do i see a time where that will change yes is that now no probably not but certainly i think you know it's looking at what what is a zookeeper and i think that question needs to be asked because there was a time when of course it, it meant something very different it used to mean something very different in between zoological organizations whereas now i think in a modern zoo that role, you, you can't have a zoo without it. There, there, there is no zoo without that role. There's no animal welfare without that role. And that, that needs to be formally recognised. So I accept that. Yeah, I think it's exactly that. I think you're exactly right. Finding that zookeeping role is step one. And hopefully that will be achieved. But I've got a feeling this might be uh, going on for a fair few years to come yet. I, th- I think it will, because it always seems to be something to spend more money. And I, I worked hard when I started here to make sure that um, at least... Those discussions are taking place. You know, we are asking an awful lot of people and it's it's not acceptable to fall back and think, oh, well, they love it or they're doing a job because of that, you know, people, people have all kinds of different jobs. A, a pilot loves his job too, I'm sure. They get paid an awful lot more money. And I, I just think the conversation needs to take place within the organisations. And I, I'm very, very confident and pleased that we do have those discussions regularly. Ah, uh, really, really great answer. It's really reassuring and really, really nice to hear that someone is fighting the fight for us zookeepers and that our voice is being heard so no a really really great answer now number two then takes us to something brand new is the secretary of state guidelines something which is very much being analyzed is on our doorstep and is incoming um, slash already here now it covers over a hundred page document of a whole bundle of things but the thing I want to look at in particular is the conservation aspect and how zoos portray themselves. They can no longer simply give funding to a conservation outlet. It has to be more than that. We have to prove our worth and show actually what true conservation we're doing. So the question I've got for you alongside this is with unlimited funds, what would you do to achieve this? But I guess more importantly, what are you already doing to achieve this, as I'm sure most zoos are already doing? I, I have to be honest and blow out conservation trumpet here and say we do an extraordinary amount of direct conservation. Um, for, for a collection of our site, we've got a fully functional, engaged conservation team working in partnership with, well, I've lost count of how many partners we work with, but we're paired up with Durrell, Vincent Wildlife Trust, Kent Wildlife Trust um, on active and live release projects at any given point. Yeah. We, we read and release white stalks at NEP um, in collaboration with Durrell. So all the stalks that we've bred have been released. Red squirrels, um, again, a species that we've had a great deal of history with. Same with beavers. In fact, our remit for beavers has changed. We've released beavers historically um, now we um, re- rehabilitate beavers that need to build up muscle fitness. They've been rejected from groups, ready for re-release back into appropriate habitats for them. So we work very closely on, on that. We do, we're do. we just building our pine martin breeding facility. Our wildcat breeding facilities have uh, now been completed. We're working in collaboration with Durrell and Vincent Wildlife Trust for the release project for those which will take 
in place in 2025. We've, we've got like obviously bison out in, in the Blue Woods in collaboration with the EP. It's, it's hard to think of a species that we have that we're not directly linked to some conservation project, with the exception of bears and wolves. Bears we have here because they were uh, historically in the UK, and actually our bears are rescued. We pulled them out of awful situations. Uh, in Bulgaria and Albania, so we work collaboratively with bears in mind. We hosted the uh, International Bear Workshop um, late last year, September, um, which was fantastic. But we've been widely recognised, and I think justifiably so, for our conservation work. We do we do so much job at Red Bill Chuff. They're going out for leasing into Dover this year, so another reintroduction that we've played the lead role in. So I'm glad you asked that question because I can answer that with a, with, with a, a degree of pride. In, in what we're doing on site obviously we manage the woodland very sympathetically we've got harvest mice and door mice on site we run the the, the door mice um, licensing program here so we do a lot of, a lot of our team all door mice license we do bat rehab work so we've got big bat rehabilitation pen here we've got 21 beehives so we've got big apiary wow. as well on site and and we really manage the site extremely sympathetically not only for the animals that we house within the living collection but for the native species that exist within the woodland here, of, of which dormice and hazel mice and, and, and mole bat species, common lizards, grass snakes, uh, slow worms, so we, we, we've got a lot of wildlife on the site as well. And we, everything we do is respectful of that. So we've got dead hedging around the park, which really encourages a lot of not only invertebrates, but the common lizards breed within our, within our grounds very abundantly. So we're probably one of the few organisations that is frequently sought to advise on, on conservation involvement for, for other zoos, including very large organizations absolutely and i think you're probably one of the best people to talk to about this and that's the word conservation as soon as someone hears that word their minds straight away jump abroad to these exotic vibrant locations such as asia africa south america and so on some of the most iconic wildlife all across our globe very much needing the help with some quite incredible project protecting them in need of that aid but and this is the big but here and you are showing it firsthand through wildwood that it can be done on your doorstep it can be done at home we have some amazing iconic native wildlife here which really needs preserving rewilding and protecting and you are showing firsthand why it's so needed to hopefully protect the future of our uk wildlife that's, that's absolutely right and i, I spent a long time uh, obviously chairman of falconiform tag doing some with you know the team that did some fantastic work with with vultures uh european african and perhaps let's say with, with, with asian directly but did, did some fantastic work but you know, spend more time perhaps advising on, on different conservation projects overseas when there is so much going on here, so much that we need to do. We're one of the most depleted countries for wildlife in Europe. You know, we are the only country in Europe or the United Kingdom is the, is the only area in Europe now without European wolves. You know, even in Belgium, the four packs of wolves, the Netherlands, Germany, France, we are completely devoid of nature. And I think one of the big things for us here in the UK is we've actually forgotten how to live with a lot of these animals. You know, we, we talk about reintroductions, we're doing wildcats. Obviously, there's, there's been great white out seagull um, introductions and there's still a lot of kickback or perhaps lack of understanding as you go camping in France and you've got wolves and lynx out there and uh, we don't have anything you go through a woodland and you might see a fox and some rabbits but we're, we're, we're devoid of nature in, in, in 
the UK, and it's largely our fault. And our, our role and mission is is to try and reverse that and bring that back. A really cracking answer, and really, really well put. I'm sure that this new legislation will only further zoos and hopefully promote zoos in a better and better light as time goes on. So no, some really, really great words. Now, this leads us to number three, the final question of the big questions. And that leads us to collection planning. Something in every single zoo, any good zoo has a collection plan and it is much needed. Now, everyone wants to be part of it from getting their favourite animal in there through to simply being part of the process or seeing the future of their collection. So the question alongside this is, how is Wildwood's collection plan so unique within this industry? Well, ours is very interesting. Actually, my first job, my strategy when I when I started as director here was to produce the institutional collection plan. And rather than focusing on curator, you know, if it's down to me, I'd have a, I'd have a park full of birds of prey and snakes. But you can't. You've got to have an appropriate approach as to uh, and the important question for this. And I know Brian Zimmerman at uh, Bristol and Wild Places was a great advocate. This is why am I here? What is the purpose of this animal in your collection and it has to go beyond just stating education which everyone you can of course there's an educational purpose behind any animal because there's something that somebody could learn but does that justify why it's in a collection a lot of times of course it doesn't so so we have a very very extensive collection plan focused on the conservation status of the animal obviously whether it's existed in the uk whether it exists now what its biodiversity action plan score is do we have the relevant expertise to manage that species? Is there a conservation release project occurring for that species? Is there a conservation release project that we should be initiating for that species? Very much based on that, has it existed within the UK since the last ice age? Are, are they here now? And it, it, it's actually quite an extensive plan. And, you know, we're, we're very willing to share that because and it's all done on a scoring system. So place the species on a spreadsheet. They're all scored based on this number of criteria. And the score at the end dictates whether or not it's an animal that we're going to be working with. So there were species here when I started. You know, there's, there's a reptile house here. And it's got things like Californian king snakes and uh, red knee bird eating spiders from Mexico. Well, of course... They don't fit into a collection plan. As beautiful as they are, and as much as a purpose they serve in, in other zoos, they don't they don't form part of the plan. Uh, and that's done in collaboration with the relevant taxonomy. So if I want to have a bird collection discussion, um, it, it's actually brilliant because we, we, the trustees get involved with it, the keeper team are involved in it, and, and we go through it taxa by taxa. And, and things change. I think it's really important to have those open discussions because, of course, there's species on a collection plan that you might put on there and think, actually, we don't have the relevant expertise. And then, of course, after your next recruitment, your next keeper comes along and they've worked on a project breeding this species for the last 15 years. And, and that changes. So I think it's very important to at least have that annual collection plan review. And, and the, the very important question, is, of course, is why am I here? Why is that animal on your collection plan what purpose is it actually serving and and it, it's true there is a purpose to, to having an animal because it's popular and people want to see it be honest about it though you know that that is make that the reason and i think that's absolutely fine but you know as a as a, as a zoological organization and certainly as a conservation charity we, we need to have very transparent reasons for why these animals are being held in, in our institutions i couldn't agree more and a really great way to wrap up those big questions you fought your way through you've managed it and you survive that is the big questions out of the way and it leads us to the last part of this podcast episode it leads us to what we call the quick fire round it's something which can fly by as the name indicates or as we're finding out very quickly things can explode into knowledge and conversation so we'll see how we get on mark 
and and see how we go. Now, the first question I've got for you then is what is your favourite animal? I, I have to be true to form and say harpy eagle for me. You know, I've I've been fascinated with them since I was a, since I was a child. I've been lucky enough to tick them off my bucket list in the wild in Ecuador. They're just such a fascinating magnificent species that is rarely seen but very adaptable to change and yeah just beautiful I, I, I can't think why it wouldn't be everyone's favorite species it really ought to be what a great animal to pick now you smash that one on to number two and that is what is the best side of the industry oh that's a good question the people i think a lot obviously animals ambition but but the people that you get to work with and learn from i think is, is certainly if i think back on, on my most memorable times within the industry i i think largely of some of the amazing people that I've worked with. Yeah, 100%. The people very much make the industry what it is. Now, to flip it on its head, the next question for you then is what would you improve within the industry? Salary for keepers, recognition um, of a job, recognition of the job that people are being asked to do. I think that the job description for zookeepers probably doesn't get looked at as frequently as it should. And I think there needs to be an acceptance, as we touched on earlier, that this isn't just feeding and cleaning an animal and going home at the end of the day. It is a hard job with a great deal of expectation. And I think that general recognition, not just within internal organisations, but a broader level, that this is a, this is a skilled job. It's actually a huge insult to consider that it's not a skilled job. I wouldn't want unskilled people managing bison and, and bears or introductions or managing the diet for animals in captivity or being responsible for, for the lives of the animals that are in our care or for releasing them. How can that be unskilled? That's just insulting. That that needs to change. I know that. Yeah, 100%. And hopefully it does change in the near future. Now, the next question for you then is, what is your top tip for mental health and well-being? That's, that's a very personal thing, isn't it? I, I guess that, that impacts everybody differently. But taking time for yourself, I think, and surrounding yourself by, by people who are going to support you, be positive, and actually understand that everyone's different and we all get to have an off day. But finding time, making sure you've got that time to just reflect on hey, I, I did it for this reason. This is the good that I'm doing today. For me, I think spending time outdoors and around wildlife is certainly a very healthy thing for me personally. Um, and that's the only advice I could give others because it's, it's, it's done me okay. Some really great words there. Now, the next question could take you absolutely anywhere in this world. And that is, what zoo globally would you like to visit and why? Oh, that's interesting. So I want to visit globally. Um, I would probably, I, I'm going to say go to San Diego because I've been to a lot of zoos I'd like to visit globally. I have to say I've been very lucky in that regard. Um, but I've not been to San Diego and everybody tells me I need to go to San Diego. It's meant to be absolutely amazing. I'd, I'd like to go and see it for myself. That That's probably where I'd say. A very, very good choice. And I think there's going to be a running theme on this podcast that it is a world-renowned zoo. It does capture people's imagination and i think we're going to have it a fair few times so no a very very good choice now the next one mark i need you to put on your magic hat i need you to look into the future look forward 20 to 30 years do you still see zoos being the same as we see them today no not at all i think i i really like that question actually because i think 20 to 30 years ago if you were to ask that, they, they've changed dramatically in that space of time. And I, you know, you know I, probably controversial thing to say, but I don't mind too much. I think that 
animals and wildlife and conservation are more accessible to the public than ever before. You know, through through the fantastic work of David Attenborough and amazing wildlife documentaries and and even travel around the world to see see, see conservation in action live project. I don't think that public opinion will allow zoos to remain the same. And I think that's a good thing. And I personally believe that there will be a lot more pressure to justify why we have specific animals in collections. What conservation work are you doing with that animal? I think the landscape and the habitat surrounding animals will be will be called into question you know can you and i'm not believe I'm, I'm not focusing on any specific zoo here but should you be keeping huge herbivores in the middle of a city or are there better species that, that fit in within that collection plan you know and even within my site here is it acceptable to keep brown bears in in the enclosure actually i think it's an amazing enclosure in 30 years time will it be an amazing enclosure and i think that attitude of more space less animals is definitely going to to, to play an integral uh, focal point for the public when looking at zoos. I also think that there'll be an awful lot more pressure to justify your animals and be actively involved in native species conservation. That's what I think. Um, and I'm seeing that now. The, the amount of requests we have had from zoos to advise on wildcats and pimatis, particularly those two species, which some of it has really come out left field from zoos. I thought, wow, I, I had no idea you had interest in, in native species and particularly those animals. But of course, there's there's a lot of uh, publicity around wildcat projects. You know, we've got three. We've got the the team up at Highlands doing a fantastic job. The team um, at Durrell ourselves and, and Vincent Wildlife Trust, I hope, doing a fantastic job in, in in being excited and promoting promoting these projects. There's an English project being considered, and I, I think that's absolutely great. And I think it's really important that we start looking at our own landscape, and that is a responsibility for zoological organisations in the UK. There should be a native species element to it, but not just an element. It, it should be a, a significant percentage of what we're doing. And, and I think that will be a big change. I think there'll be a lot of lot more focus on working with species that exist within your landscape. Absolutely, a great answer. Now, we're moving on to that second to last question. And this is, gets a little bit more personal. And that's who in the industry is your idol? I think, you know what, I think... It's fair to say that I, one of the people I've looked up to most in terms of resilience, hard work and ability is a guy called Jim Mackey, who I worked with at London Zoo. He was We worked together on the animal training team. And Jim, you know, I, I wanted to develop this position for animal training and behaviour officer at ZNSL. And I'd always been really interested in animal behaviour and training. And I, I created this position. And Jim jumped at the chance. He was the obvious person to do it because he's absolutely—he lives and breathes this work, and everything he does is for the benefit of the animals. This is this guy has got—he's got no ego whatsoever. Everything he does is to benefit, genuinely benefit, and improve the lives of animals in, in, in captive settings through trained behaviour, through um, veterinary interventions, and all of this work. And he's done such an incredible job. I think I'm so proud of everything that he has done. And it, it was a field that I thought I was good at until Jim did it. <laughs> thought, oh, and, and I learned so much from him in, in just the way he engaged with the animals, the, the way he engages teams and people. I think he's probably the person I look up to the most. I think I think he's, he's done an outstanding job and I think he should be very proud of himself. Some very, very nice words. Now, this leads us to the very, very last question of this podcast. I believe it's one of the hardest ones. And that is... Mark, I need you to sum up this whole industry that we work in 
in only three words. Ah, oh my goodness. <laughs> um, in three words, Frikey. Um, challenging, fun, and rewarding. I think that, that, that certainly for me, and it's probably a selfish take on it, but there's no question that he's challenging, none whatsoever. And, you know, it's, it's hard work. It, it, it's hard for it's hard for people when you come in and it's mud and wet and it's hard work and you got to move hay bales and animals out in the worst conditions. But you know the the rewards come through through the work that you're doing. I think you know people should be very proud of of everything they've achieved. And for a lot of the time, you know, I see people having fun. I'm having every job that I've done. Watch people getting the most out of it and enjoying themselves as well. So. Uh, that's what I think. Some very fitting words to wrap up this whole industry in only three words and to sadly wrap up this episode. Thank you so much, Mark, for coming on, sharing your life, sharing your journey and your amazing story so far. I have thoroughly enjoyed it and I'm sure I can speak on behalf of the listeners. It has been a true pleasure to have you on. My pleasure. And hopefully we'll get you on again very, very soon. I hope so. Well, thank, thanks very much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you once again, Mark, and take care of yourself until next time. Likewise. Cheers. Bye. See ya. And that concludes this week's episode. What an amazing guest and an amazing time we had. Now, if you have enjoyed it, please do subscribe on Instagram, Facebook, or our podcast channels to Zookeeping 101. I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey, learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you very, very soon. Bye.